Well, howdy, y'all. <laughs> Greetings from Texas. Uh, it's, it really is a pleasure to be here and be back. Uh, I think I spoke here a few years ago, and it's uh, a joy to be back. I'm here to talk about culture, but just to kind of, you know, get us set for that, I want to talk a little bit about, about an American observation about some sports that are in the Commonwealth. So these are sports that you all have that we don't have in the States. But I have made careful observation of what's going on, and I just want to kind of set the stage for talking about cultural engagement with these. So I start with cricket. Here is my summation of cricket as an American. It's a wonderful game to learn a foreign language by. I'm talking about test cricket, okay? And here's why it works. And this is actually a true story. I learned German watching cricket in Scotland. Okay, I turn on the BBC, watch the game, hear a yell, watch the instant replay, and then I knew I could study my vocabulary and verbs for another 45 minutes before anything of significance happened again. <laughs> and so I learned German with cricket going on in the background. Now, there also is darts, which is a very peculiar sport. Uh, it's actually philosophically debated whether darts constitutes a sport. And in analyzing this, I realized that for this arm, it might work. But I have questions about what's going on over here. So, um, so that's darts. Then there's rugby. Uh, rugby's an exciting sport, and, and uh, what you need to understand is when I lived in Scotland doing doctoral work, there was one American football game a year, and they used rugby to describe to the British people what American football was like. Then the one line that I remember of the instruction went something like this. A score in football is called a touchdown, but they don't actually touch the ball down. And so that's rugby. Then there's Aussie Rules. Aussie Rules is exciting. It's a wonderful game, but I am convinced that the official officiating the game, what we call a referee, I'm not sure what you call them here. Uh, John, you need to answer that question after the break. Umpire, okay, the umpire, very good. Okay, he has anger management problems, all right? I mean, just think about how the game begins. I mean, nothing's happened, and he's already pounding the ball into the ground, all right? And then there's bowls. Boy, is that exciting. <laughs> so, um, so it really, it, it, you know, there's something about sport that connects people. There's something about culture that connects people. And then there's something about culture that connects people, and we sense that we're fighting over space with one another. And certainly in my lifetime, I have watched the battle that Scripture talks about become what we often call a culture war. And I want to do a little bit of work in biblical theology of cultural engagement while at the same time trying to make the point that the war that we are engaged in has been so misinterpreted that the church has actually done itself damage by how much of it has done the culture war. So I want you to help, I want to help you think through that a little bit with me. So I'm going to take you really quickly through a series of texts in the New Testament, and then we're going to have questions at the end, which is beautiful because if I'm unclear, which the odds of which are excellent, uh, you can help me be sure that I will be clear. So if you have a Bible with you, or you have one in your, uh, in your row, do open it to the passage that we just read. It's the first passage that I'm going to talk about. 
It's Ephesians 6.10. It actually is the wrap-up to a beautiful text uh, of Scripture and a beautiful epistle of Scripture in which Paul is summarizing various aspects of what it means to be the church and particularly what it means to be the church in the world. And he talks about the armor of God. And there, I want to make two observations from this passage. The key one will appear in chapter 6 and verse 12. So if you have your text, you can open it up there. And the passage begins like this. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not, 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 that was emphatic, (laughs) against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces. It's against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And so my first point is this. That as the church engages with its battle for the hearts and souls of people, its battle is not against people who disagree with us. In fact, people are never, 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 that was emphatic, the enemy. They're actually the goal. And it makes all the difference in the world how you see people with how you engage them. And so this text is saying us that our battle, and by the way, Jesus told us we were going to have this battle. He said, you know, if you become my disciple, um, they're going to treat you just like they treated me. And anyone who knows anything about history knows that the treatment of Jesus wasn't exactly marvelous by the world. He ended up being crucified for what he believed and what he preached. And so there's going to be this pushback. We should never be surprised by that. We should never feel entitled to escape that pushback. To do that is to step away from our discipleship. So when we engage, we've got to realize that our battle is against these spiritual forces. And you'll notice something else about this passage. And it's the second point that I want to make out of it. And it's this. What protects us in the battle is not our ideology, not our association with a political party, but our sense of identity with the Lord and our drawing on the resources that he gives us. On the spiritual resources that he gives us. It's a spiritual battle. It requires spiritual resources. Just look at the way he describes the full armor of God in this passage. It is an armor that involves girding your loins with the truth. It involves putting on the breastplate of righteousness. It means shodding your feet with the gospel of peace between the theology that we have and the character that we're able to have formed within us through the Spirit of God, that is our defense. That is our political, social manifesto. In addition to all these, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit and pray in the Spirit. And then he asks for prayer for himself. So two points out of this first passage. People are not the enemy. And the battle is a spiritual battle. It requires spiritual resources in order to be fought. And those spiritual resources are a combination of the identity and the position that we have in Christ set apart to him and the theology and the capability that we have to live a life that is distinctive 
in a world that's searching for itself. We live in a world that's searching for itself. I was on the plane um, yesterday flying from Melbourne to here, and um, as often happens on planes, your, um, your time is, is your, your options are limited. I'll just say it that way as to what you do with your time. You can sleep, which some people do. Okay, you can take the Coke and the biscuits, which almost everybody does. Okay, you can read or work. Okay, or you can take advantage of the entertainment. So I chose the latter option, the Qantas Entertainment app. And I turned on my Qantas Entertainment app and pushed the button and saw what was available. I said, I'm not interested. I don't have enough time to watch any of the movies. It's just Melbourne to Sydney. I really don't care for anything that's on choice in terms of TV. So I opted out of that. I went to the music section and I saw Coldplay, a British group, playing in Sao Paulo, and I was in Brazil last summer, so I thought, that looks interesting, I think I'll click that on. Just listen to some contemporary music, at least relatively contemporary to me, and something a little different. And I turned it on, and I clicked on to this huge stadium of people, listening to words of all kinds of songs and all kinds of music, including a tune called Clocks, which if I played the, the, the melody that goes with it, you would all know it. And, my, and the words caught my attention because he was singing about seeking who he was in the world, who people are in the world. He's singing this before, I don't know, 100,000 people. And I often think when I minister in cultural engagement, that it's important to hear the cries from the public square. What people are thinking, what they are wrestling with when they get serious, when they turn off all the noise and all the distraction and things get quiet and they're wrestling with who they are and why they're here and they're searching for themselves. That's what you see. That's what you feel. You can hear it sometimes in the music. You can see it sometimes in the uncertainty of why I'm doing what I'm being asked to do every day. And Christians, with their armor, with the theology that they have, with the identity they have, with the um, understanding that Christ gives us about the purpose of life, about the community that they can form, can offer something different. I was at a conference two weeks ago in which someone got up and gave their testimony about how they had come to the Lord as an adult. And the person who led them to the Lord gave them this one piece of advice as the first piece of discipleship he offered to this guy. And here was what he told him. Live your life in such a way that it demands a question. I thought, what a beautiful phrase. Live your life in such a way that it demands a question. Your life should be so different. The community life at St. Andrews Roseville should be so different in, the, in terms of the world looking for itself and searching for itself, that it asks the question, why do you live that way? Why are you different than many of us? What makes your sense of life outstanding? That's the armor of God. It's not in politics. It's not in our circumstances. It's not in our, in our, in our political parties, whatever they may be. That's where it resides. And the first point of cultural engagement is to understand 
that our engagement with the world is designed to live in such a way that we're probing to get them to ask a question, and our life is such that it answers that question. And that's the calling of the people of God in the world. So that's our first text, Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. Now I'm going to move on. And as I said, I'm going to try and go quickly here. I'm trying to move that forward. Let's see. That works, I think. Second passage, 1 Peter 3, 13 to 18. You're not only going to get a message tonight, you're going to get a test of how well you know the New Testament. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is a very famous text. Uh, Most people who work uh, and do Bible memory will encounter 1 Peter 3, 15 as a part of their collection. I'll read it by itself first, and then we'll see what it looks like in context. It says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. It actually literally reads, Set apart Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you about the reason for the hope that you have. And that's the piece that we memorize. And what I want to do is I want to build around it to show you what's going on in this very public text about how we're supposed to interact with people who may be pushing back against us in the midst of this battle that we have. Oh, I forgot to tell you something. If you need a metaphor, if you, if you believe in the battle metaphor and you need a metaphor, rather than thinking about a person across the table from you as the enemy and think of yourself as needing to win a military victory of one kind or another or win a debate or however you want to think about it, Think about it this way. You are members of of special forces, of special forces. You know what special forces do. They go in and and rescue. They do the difficult difficult stuff for the military. They, They clear the way, or if someone's in danger, they'll go in and rescue them. So think of yourself as special forces. Rescuing someone in the clutches of someone trying to do them harm. Only there's a twist to this one. There's an inswinger, if you will. And the inswinger is that the person who's in the clutches of the spiritual forces that are endangering them and deceiving them, they aren't even aware that that's going on. And my premise is, is that if you use that as the picture rather than seeing the person across you who disagrees with you as an enemy, you will interact with them differently. You approach them differently. You will engage them differently. You will develop a sense of of sympathy and trying to understand where they are and doing some listening as well as perhaps telling and engage them with where they are coming from. So with that in the background, this passage in 1 Peter 3 comes along and says we need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Now, that passage is interesting in and of itself simply because of the singular word that it picks to summarize everything that our message is supposed to be about. I tell my students there are three key single words to talk about the gospel in the New Testament. One of them is power, which means capability and enablement. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And it's talking about the enablement that God gives us. Whereas in Romans 1 to 3, we were unable to live in a way that honors God. And we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Through justification and sanctification, we receive the Spirit of God. That's the power and the enablement. So we now can walk in a way that we were incapable of walking before we came to know the Lord. So that's one word. The second word is reconciliation. I'll be talking about that one in a little bit. And the third word is the word hope. 
Our faith is only about a hope. Not that I hope something will happen almost like a wish, but a concrete, solid hope, an expectation that we know where this drama is going. And we participate in it as believers, and we are called to invite other people to participate in it who haven't sensed what it is that the world's supposed to be about. And so this, this hope is a very important word. Now, the reason I say it's important to get the battle right is because of the way the church has handled its message. I accuse the church of having what I call Jimmy Cagney theology. Now, I've got to explain an illustration. Illustration's never good if you have to explain it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. So I'm breaking my rule, and then I'm going to explain it to you. So Jimmy Cagney, how many of you know who Jimmy Cagney is? I'm just curious. Look at that, about, about half of you, okay. How many of you have no clue who Jimmy Cagney is? Confess, put those hands up high. Okay, now, those of you who know who Jimmy Cagney is, put those hands up high again. Those of you who raise your hand. Okay, and those of you who didn't raise your hands to begin with, oh, keep the hands up, you who know who Jimmy Cagney is. Okay, those who don't know who Jimmy Cagney is, meet with someone who has their hand up afterwards and have a cross-generational moment. Okay, <laughs> all right, just, just do that. Jimmy Cagney is a, an actor from actually my parents' generation. He was a little short Irish guy, and he played all kinds of these little tough guy parts, and he had what I call, now, now I'm going to use a brand name here, I don't know if you have it here, Black and Decker. Is there, Black, you have Black and Decker here? Oh, I'm in great shape, okay? This is one of the problems of flying over an ocean, you don't know if your illustrations are going to work, okay? So... Black, now, a Black & Decker voice is like this. Nah, 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 nah. Okay, you ever, you ever, you ever heard? Nah, 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 nah. That's Jimmy Cagney's voice. All right? It's annoying. Okay? And one of the famous lines that he had in one of his movies is, You're the one who killed my brother. Nah, 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 nah. You can hear it right there in the voice. And, and so, when I listen to the church, here's the message that I hear. Nah, 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 you dirty rat, you shouldn't be doing that. And then my next question is, where's the good news in that? Where's the hope? Where's the positive nature of inviting people into a life experience that actually will help their lives make sense? Because the world is looking for itself. How do we do that? Well... This passage actually suggests how to do that well. And when we are simply engaged in Jimmy Cagney theology, we miss on the note of hope. And so I want to put this in context because this note of hope needs to be played in a certain way. So start with me and back up from verse 15 to verse 13 where it says, And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? perfectly straightforward verse. The verse basically says, if you do what's right, you'll be in good shape. And that's what we teach our kids. You know, do what's right, everything will be in good shape. But we don't live in a normal place. And so the next verse says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, just think about that phrase for a second. Even if you should suffer for the sake of right, you do right and every good deed will be punished. First Peter's saying, that's our world sometimes. Every good deed will get punished. 
Even if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. The first way to react to the pushback that often comes in the world is to not be afraid and to not be intimidated and to not be troubled. Jesus told it was going to happen. And if you participate in it, you're blessed. Your life is a different kind of life lived in a different kind of way. And it's a life that demands a question. Why are you different? Why do you live differently? And, but that difference is not presented arrogantly or haughtily. It's simply lived out. So it says, But if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled. And then the version that I have here says, But sanctify, set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And then usually we stop. But I have a view that wherever I get a period, okay, I should keep reading. I mean, look at the translation that's up here on the screen. Okay, it says, uh, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, period. Full stop. But it goes on. It says this, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Tone matters. It's not only what we say, it's how we say it. It's how we engage. Do it with gentleness and reverence. These two Greek words are very, very interesting. The first one suggests a meekness. And the second one is the word we get, and the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. It has to do with a reverence, a respect that you give to people. And so I'm supposed to engage against the person who's trying to understand what I'm about when that question does come up. And when that question does come up, I'm responding with gentleness and reverence. But don't stop there. Keep reading. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing that you are slandered, second time it's mentioned you're going to get pushed back. If you do what's right, you're blessed. In the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior may be put to shame. You live in such a way that when there's pushback, you still have a good conscience and your testimony remains. And their response is the thing that's shameful. And then it goes on to say this. For it is better if God should so will it that you suffer for what is doing right, for doing what is, uh, rather than doing what is wrong. Third time suffering is mentioned in the passage. If you do right and you suffer for it, you're blessed. If they slander you, have a good conscience. And if you suffer for doing what's right, that's okay. That's better than doing what's wrong. You don't pay back in kind which is oftentimes what the church will do. They'll fight the same nasty fight in the same nasty way, making themselves look like everybody else, and then you just become a special interest group. And then here's the reason. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, or the righteous for the unrighteous, and then watch this. To bring you to God. It doesn't say to bring them to God. It's a reminder. 
it's a reminder that the way in which we came to the Lord is that God got our attention when our backs were turned to God. And that he suffered as a result of the way the world pushed back against him. So if they push back against him, they'll also push back against us. But when they push back against us, you're never supposed to forget where you came from. You came from a place where God was gracious to you when you didn't deserve it. We just sang about that. And when you're engaging with someone who disagrees with you, who who is outside the church, and who sometimes you might be, you need to remember, that's where I was. That's That's who I am apart from God. And it should create a sense of humility and sympathy and tone in how we engage. Okay, those are my first two passages. Those are my main passages. I'm going to move very, very quickly now. Turn with me now to Colossians chapter 4. I think that's the next text on the list. If I've got this right, let's see. Colossians chapter 4, 5, and 6. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always, 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 always. That was emphatic. Now, always is a technical term. Okay? It can be very, very confusing. Okay? Because it kind of means, like, all the time. There's a time, there's never a time when it's not appropriate for your speech to be full of grace. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 12 months out of the year, 365 days, 366 days in a leap year. You don't get a day off every four years. Always. Season with salt. So you may know how to answer everyone. There is a tone in our engagement that is as important as the content that we offer as we challenge people. And the challenge of sharing in our world is a tension that we all feel. It's the tension between the fact that the gospel challenges the way people live on the one hand, but it is an invitation into hope on the other. And if it only has the challenge, nah, 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 the invitation gets drowned out. And you never take the person to the place that you're actually offering them. And if you only offer hope without a context to understand what the challenge is and why it is that Christ died and why it is that we need God, you assume, like the rest of the West does, that we're entitled to a relationship with God by default. You haven't done the gospel a service either. So be wise in the way you act towards others. Make the most of every opportunity. Let grace in your conversation always be full of grace. Always. Sometimes I hear people in the church talk about people outside the church, and I want to send them as a life memory verse this passage. The next text. The next text isn't up there on the slide, so I'll just tell you what it is. The next text is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. 
The old things have passed away, new things have come. We invite people into sacred space. We invite them to take on a life that they do not have without the forgiveness and provision that God gives. Now all these things are from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. You know what our call is, what our ministry is? Our ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. We're designed to bring people together who are estranged. We're supposed to bring people together who are estranged to God and in the process of doing that, we bring people together who are estranged from one another. That's the ministry call. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us this word of reconciliation. I'm actually interested in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. I've given you one picture, special forces. Okay, but some of you are pacifists. All right? So if you're a pacifist, this is the metaphor for you. Okay? You're also an ambassador. You represent Christ wherever you go. You represent the kingdom of God wherever you go. We all have a portfolio that God has given us as ambassadors. We are ambassadors as though, now watch the tone of this. Here's our message. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's an invitation. It's an invitation into sacred space. We're urging people. Now granted, there's an accountability demand. I'll be talking about that tonight. There's an accountability demand behind this. But that's God's business. God's business is to convict the heart. I like to stay in my pay grade and in my pay lane. I like to drive in the lane I'm supposed to be driving in and not drive in God's lane. And so as I do this, my only call is to be faithful in laying out the message and giving people the opportunity and urging them to step into this new life because the world is searching for itself. You can see it in the words when they're honest. And they're just not sure where to land. And we have a landing place. And a healthy space. A sacred space to take people to. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Two more passages. Real quick. Galatians chapter 6 verse 10. This passage comes at the end of a long section in Galatians 5 and 6 in which Paul has been expounding the law of love. And he goes through the theological explanation of the law of love and he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. You ever thought about the fruit of the Spirit? You ever thought about the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, almost all relational. And when he gets to the end of this long exposition, in one verse he says, here's the application. He obviously went to seminary where I went to school where you're told, preach the theology for 30 minutes and then in two minutes give the application at the end. That's what he's doing here. And so he says this in verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, it's the second time the word opportunity has been used. Your speech seasoned with salt and being full of grace always was the first opportunity. Here's another opportunity. While we have opportunity, let us do good to all, 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 all men. That was emphatic. 
Now, I'm highlighting all because all is another one of these very, very, very difficult technical terms. Okay? You got to go to a dictionary to understand what it means. You got to open it up to the place that goes A L L. And then you got to read the definition. Okay? And if it's a good dictionary, it won't just say all. Well, the definition of all is all. Okay? It will say the definition of all is everyone. No exceptions. Do good to all men. Do good to all people. No exceptions. Especially those who are the household of the faith. Let me make an application out of here that may change the way you read the Bible. I was thinking about this text, and it dawned on me the numerous texts that I have read and debates that I've been aware of studying New Testament and reading commentators and scholars, you know, whose job is to, you know, really think precisely about stuff, okay? That's why I have glasses. i got to think precisely about stuff, okay? And I've gone, you know, pretty nearsighted reading all this stuff. Think precisely about this stuff. So there are lots of passages where the debate is, is this about how we're supposed to treat believers, or is this how we're supposed to treat all people? And mounds and mounds and mounds of ink have been spilt by theologians answering that question. And mounds and mounds and mounds of paper have been produced, okay? Gaps in the Amazon exist, okay? To produce the paper on which this ink has been spilt. And it dawned on me, reading this text and thinking about those texts, that this is a debate that in, in a technical sense has merit, but in another sense is moot, Because if I'm supposed to treat all people the same, but especially supposed to treat believers this way, what that text is telling me is I treat all people the same way. All means all, not some. And yet we sometimes have utilized the Bible in such a way that says my responsibility is to treat certain people this way, people in the house of God, and I'm supposed to treat other people, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Not us. Not our concern. And we've actually bludgeoned the text by doing that and applying it that way. We may be right to have the discussion, is this really after the believers as someone on the outside? But the application we are not allowed to make is, because I'm supposed to treat believers this way, therefore I don't have to worry about how I treat non-believers. If you have any doubt about that, go to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Lawyer, ask a question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer, because he's a lawyer. Lawyers never know when to stop asking questions. Ask the follow-up question. The follow-up question is, so who's my neighbor? Now, this is a question that's designed to be asked because there's a question underneath the question that's not on the, sur- on the surface. It's like when my wife says to me, honey, are you going to the store? Okay, I got a little bit of laughter with that. I think you know that dance. Honey, are you going to the store? She's not asking for my approximate geographical location, okay? And I know that if I commit, if I make a commitment with an answer that goes yes, I know what's coming next, and so do you, okay? Well, honey, if you're going to the store, will you pick up X, Y, and Z? Because I was going to go to the store, but if you're going anyway, you can save me a trip, okay? 
And I'm around to serve my wife, so this is great. All right, so I say yes, I go to the store, I pick it up, and I'm good for 24 hours. Okay, this is highly recommended. He's my neighbor. He was really asking, are there some people who are not my neighbor? Do I have to love everybody or only some? And then he tells a parable. And with the parable, he doesn't really answer the question. He's my neighbor. Because at the end, when he tells the story, I call it, I call it the Indianapolis 500 parable. Okay? Guy gets beaten up, left for dead. There he is. Okay, the priest and the Levite come by, and they go right around the guy. I mean, Formula One. I'm going to avoid this as fast as I can. Samaritan stops, takes care of him, binds up his wound. I mean, the the text just stops when the Samaritan sees this guy, describes everything he does on his behalf in service, and then takes him, and then Jesus ends that peril by saying, be a neighbor. Don't worry about who the neighbor is next to you is just be one and oh by the way neighbors come in surprising packages because here are the examples of Samaritan do good to all people especially those of the household of faith so here's what I've said with that I'm going to go to the last passage 2nd Timothy turn with me to 2nd Timothy chapter 2 with this I'll be done Now Paul is writing Timothy, a minister, and he's summarizing kind of how he should engage. And this is what he says. And there is an in-swinger at the end of this that is worth the price of admission. Now, flee useful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And if you think about that, you go, that's like the armor of God. With those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart, our armor is the character of being a child of God. Not our circumstances, not our politics. The character and theology of what it means to be a child of God. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome quarrelsome, but be kind to, oh no, all. Well, that's a killer. Able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness. No relief for the weary. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snares of the devil, your special forces. People are trapped in a spiritual blindness that they can't even see because they're blind. They may come to the sense and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You've been given a mission, so have I. It's not mission impossible. Dun, 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 dun. Not worth it without the end. And the mission possible that we have been given 
is to live out our lives in such a way before a world that's looking for itself that demands a question. What makes you different? To which the response is, humbly, gently, lovingly, I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you about my Savior. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to reflect on your word. And we ask that you might give us this peace that should come from the hope that we have in Christ and the reconciliation that we possess and with the capability of the Spirit of God that we can rest in the character that you give us and in the message of hope that we possess. Those are our spiritual resources and those alone. Help us to rest in that and to be gracious to those around us, to love all, to speak with gentleness and meekness, and to engage the world in the midst of a spiritual battle that says quite clearly, even with people we disagree, God loves you and gave his son for you. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen.